Sorry, I know I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a letdown for all of you, I realize. Um, this is Rabbi Bleiweiss. This is a crash course in, in, in history of, of life uh, from a Torah perspective. Um, this is Yosef's doing. Uh, we were schmoozing on the bus, and he was missing some kind of history sheer, and I was missing giving one. Um, I, I do this, um, I've been doing this now for several years. This class that I've developed over the last just 25 years, that's it. Uh, I still have a few more years to work on it. The um, is a labor of love, it's my life, it's, it's I assert to you, and we're gonna try to do, cram in for how many sessions, Rep Pitham? Yeah, we'll Something, we'll see how it goes. Um, a certain final number of sessions, they're going to try to crash us and, and, and make us go through the narrative arc of our tradition of all of this, from Bracious Barlokim to the modern day. If you reasonably do this, and the way I want to do this is vicariously relive it, if you do this, I assert to you, you will be a passionate, inspired, inspired Jew. You will be, you'll, you'll find a new reason to live and to be, and you will, uh, uh, you'll do great things for, for Klal Yisrael. Because when you realize who we are and where we've been um, as, as a people, and you kind of do, you know, probably like most of us, you get bits and pieces filling in uh, here and there, um, but when you see the whole package and you realize, wait a minute, I'm the next step, you know, maybe we're nothing, we're insignificant as individuals, uh, of course the mission in Sanhedrin tells us otherwise, that Bishvalini Olam, but the, uh, but we have to realize that we are living this vibrant, dynamic history, and we're coming, according to the Chaim, we're coming on the, near the end of it. We're in what's called the Ikfas of the Mashiach. So if you appreciate where we've been, you understand and, and, and can, be, can be extremely inspired to be in the present tense. So what I'm going to try to do is take what I did already, and anybody wants to um, learn the longer version of this, I did post students many years ago persuaded me to put my shirim online. I have a website, menashablyways.com. I don't get anything from this by advertising it, just, just in case people want, um, feel like using it as a resource. Um, menashablyways.com or Unique Israel Tours, I think, is the, is the, other, is the alternate name for it. Um, where I have all my stuff, and this particular series is 130-some-odd lectures, where I'm talking a mile a minute, which I'm not going to do here. I'm going to tell you my, my, my thinking, and you're going to have to help me on this one. Um, 130 really packed, dense lectures that really trace from Breshi Sparokim, from the beginning of time to the modern era. Um, and actually, we do, we do about three or four sessions at the very end on, on the days of Mashiach. David, you'd be, where, where, it's, there you go. Uh, you'd, you'd, be, you'd be into that one. Um, the, the days of Mashiach. What I'm going to do now is going to strip away most of that and not go into such depth. What I want to do now, and however many sessions we have together, is history's greatest hits. I still want to get in some of the basic narrative arcs, some of the major points, but I'd like to do it a little looser style, um, especially since I'm, I'm sympathetic to this hour in the day uh, and it's a little bit ooh, tired right at this, this point. And we, we do have about, it's not quite an hour together, 45 minutes. When, when is this then? 6.25. Fine, so. 50 minutes, uh, 45 minutes. The, um, right, and you should ask me questions about stuff you always wanted to know and never knew or never understood, where the, where, how to connect the dots. Our first session necessarily, I'm going to talk a little about history, a little bit where we're, where we're holding, and then we're going to rampage through the Torah. And so I imagine, and I'm doing this really quickly, it's not comprehensive, so you say, Rabbi, you didn't even talk about this person. I say, you're right, I'm guilty as charged. Uh, I'm not going to do everything, but if there's stuff you want to know, ask me. Get me on it, because we're, we're loose here and informal. Since I'm not doing everything anyway, I might as well get in what's interesting to you. Um, I'm also going to do stuff that maybe I think might be obscure, little known, and I think is really important. If you want to be part of the way I wrote the history class anyway, was doing those things. This happens a lot in the whole class, right? Doors open, close the whole yeah. time. Yeah. All right. Mr. Shushan just like it. He just tunes it out. Um, grab chairs here. Take this one. 
the uh, I want to get in certain ideas that I think are really fundamental that should it's changed my way of looking at life maybe it'll change yours as well so that's that's my way of overview questions thoughts hecklers okay um, here I made if you'll forgive me I only made 10 copies of this um, because my experience when I give out these kinds of handouts is they usually, people look at them and then they, they leave them on the table afterwards. So these are for you to take home if you'd like um, or to look at. So take these and look. It's, I got a lot of handouts. I don't know if I'm going to do them all. Um, but these, this is history in a timeline. Um, it's my timeline. Take and pass. Do like every other one if you really want to take one. But at least get one around so everybody can at least glance at it once. Um, it's my basic overview of a timeline of Jewish history. Again, to try to contain it so you can... Wouldn't it be really helpful? Wouldn't you like to come off as a knowledgeable Jew if you just know the basic tenets of how, when things are? We are in the year, right? What year is it? Tafshin, Ayin, Vav, 57-76, according to the Jewish calendar. What's that based on? Where does that come from? Part of this, I, I started an idea before, part of this is Judaism 101. Everything a semi-knowledgeable person, Jew, caring, thinking, feeling Jew needs to know to be Jewish. So towards that end, ask me questions. I never understood this. How does that work? I mean, try to keep it within a historical framework. Anything that's relevant to history. Um, so one of the things you should know is, is the overview of history. Where does it come from that the year is 5776? So the Masorah. The Masorah is contained in a, in a book of a Tana by the name of um, Seder Olam Rabbah. The Seder Olam Rabbah written by Rabbi Yosei Aglili, who, um, who basically gives us history up until that point in time. When were the Tanaim? When were the Tanaim? You can cheat and look at the timeline. Seven, the first you can look at the timeline. Look at the timeline. About not quite uh, 19, 18, 1900 years ago. Okay, 18, 900 years ago. You can look in the middle of the timeline. Um, and you can see that he gives this conception he, that the world is not 6,000 years old. How does that par? How does that stem with the notion of geology and that the year is billions of years old? It's not a contradiction. Anybody in my controversial topics class, we went through a series of different ways of reconciling Torah with uh, with geology. Um, Jewish conception is that, uh, that the world's been around the civilized world for 6,000 years. So what I did in terms of the calendar, in terms of trying to give years, is I gave you the BCE before the Common Era, which is adjusted to the Gregorian Christian calendar, because that's what most people are associated with. And you'll forgive me, this is my disclaimer. I'm going to say this once and not again. In talking about history, I give in and I use the Christian calendar because that's what everybody knows. If I tell you, oh yeah, well, that happened in 2892 according to the Jewish year, you'll have no idea what that is. But if I tell you that happened in 1948, <laughs> oh, okay, 1948, right, that's good. That's the uh, you know best picture was uh, Hamlet, best actor was, uh, and all that. Yeah, go ahead. Alice, already on this, I'm confused because how could you say that Adam was born in 3760 BCE when like, you know, obviously, like, you feel like, okay, there's stuff before that, or like, like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, how does that... How does that with geology? Yeah. Well, we've gave several suggestions. It's not even geology, but I'm saying, like, actually, just like, artifacts and, like, like civilization. Like, we, like we, we have bones of people that are 10,000 years old. Now, you were even there in the science and Torah class. I was. Right? No, we talked about a few things. We said that who said that when the world was created, it was created raw? It's possible it was created already looking like it was billions of years old. One possible answer. That's fair, but that's an answer, and it's a logical answer that a lot of great minds accept. 
Meaning that, that, one, that one can be decisive because we don't know what it does is it points to our ignorance and the fact that science really doesn't know much about anything. Science is great, but I don't really know. We can't make any definitive claims about anything. Who's to say when we study the universe that the universe has always been the same? Well, the geologists do. You remember this idea, the, geolog the, the founder of, ge of geology 500 years ago that we run with the assumption that the world as we see it today has always been that way. Well, you lost me at the get-go, Mr. Geologist man. Right? It's not true because we say that there were several catalysts, several, several cataclysms is the word I was looking for, cataclysms, big events that actually changed fundamentally the entire physical world. What am I thinking of, of course? What are examples in history of things that totally changed the entire world as we know it? The marble, the marble tilt, the world was knocked off its axis. I'm ahead of myself. Right? What else totally changed the world? Adam was kicked out of Ghana Aden. What else changed the world? Basin Mikdash was destroyed not once, twice. And with that, the entire world rocked, and everything changed. There were earthquakes that made the, that changed the foundation of the universe. So that means the sedimentary rock that they're studying, the geologists, when they're trying to measure and try to come up with dates, is totally off kilter. They don't know what they're studying. Who says that a day in creation is a day like we have? It's a more famous, a familiar idea, and many, many other arguments. Not our, not our focus right now, since we're doing a rampage through history, but reasonable question with, with I think, absolutely tenable answers. Um, so you go down, so what I have, if you try to make sense of this timeline, on the left column, these are the dates adjusted to the Christian calendar. I use, instead of B.C., which acknowledges that there's such a person as Yashka who is legitimate, uh, we don't, the Jewish view is not like that. I admit my bias from the get-go. Every history is biased. Mine is no exception. I try to err on the side of being Jewish. I know that sounds really radical. But, um, but I, you know, I go with Chazal's assumptions. And, by the way, in history, you can't always assume that even sometimes Jew Anybody into history? As an actual thing, you've, you've learned it. There are a lot of people who call themselves Jewish historians. My advice to you is be skeptical, be very skeptical, because history as a discipline is often tinged and influenced by the world of academia, which is itself influenced by the Christian world. Sometimes what people think is of a Jewish history is not. Like the history dates that they give, you see on the, on the right side, I write secular dates are at odds with Chazal. They don't agree with Chazal. And then I have the Jewish dates here too. These are some of the highlights of history. It's randomly chosen. Some of the, some of the major events, you can scan down the list um, and, and, and use it as you were. Any questions about anything you see here that's not clear? You said your view is biased. Yeah, so my view on, on history in general is that it's the way Chazal said it. Um, and therefore, the things that we're going to be talking about in this crash course are, are Chazalian in nature. So whereas in a secular history, they'll put a premium on the politicians, on the mil military men, and the, and the people who seem to, to move and shake the world as such, we understand that a kobidei shemaim, chutzmiyir shemaim, everything is in the hands of, of Hashem except for yir shemaim, and that the actual movers and shakers of history are the tzaddikim, who sometimes maintain a very beneath-the-radar kind of existence. They're not politicians, they're not out there. But the impact of a Rebbe Akiva is immensely greater than any, than all of the sum total of the Roman Caesars together. So my bias is like that. Another example, a secular Jew, a secular person who assesses the Rambam, and I bet some of you have heard this exact statement before. A secular Jew who assesses the life of the Rambam says, Rambam was a great man, he was a fantastic doctor. You've heard such things before? Yeah. Right? It's a reduction to the point of absurdity. Right? 
Rambam was a doctor, sure, but to say he was a doctor and that was what he defined about, it's a projection, is what we do. We project from ourselves and our own worldview backwards onto history. So th- since a doctor is what some people like to think of as that's the ideal, so the Rambam being a doctor is their projection onto the Rambam, which we do a lot of the time and it's a mistake because the, the people of old were on such a high level, we can barely fathom them. The Rambam was, it was so many different things, as was Rapsadi Gaon, uh, as, as was, as was, and you can go through the whole list of our tzaddikim, um, but they were not necessarily as we understand things. Um, so we understand him predominantly as a man of Torah. When the Rambam, for example, is, is reduced to being an Aristotelian, you've heard of such a thing before? Aristotle was all the rage in the ancient world. It used to be that everybody used to think. Nowadays, we don't have many, we don't think so much, we just use the phones. The, um, but once upon a time, people thought deeply, I'm talking about Goyim too, about life and the world. They were bothered by questions like why and how and where did it all come from? And in, that, in the scheme of things, we'll get to this, was the, where the Greek Empire took over the world and, and expanded uh, people's ways of thinking of things. And Aristotle had a disproportionate impact on the world at large and was so dominant back in the days the Rambam lived less than a half hour between 1135 and 1204. That's the way I remember it anyway. That's a mnemonic that helps you remember. I, that you'll, if you get that, you'll remember it now for the rest of your life too. Anyway, back in the, in the um, 11th century, the Rambam was alive and active. Aristotle was the rage in the golden age of Spain. That's when everybody spoke and lived and breathed was Aristotle. So Rambam indeed knew Aristotle and spoke a good Aristotelian language for Kiruv. It's a way to reach the people of his days. Because if you didn't speak Aristotle, you missed all of Spanish Jewry. Do you know who did something very similar, for example? Jump to the 19th century, go to Rav Shimshon Hirsch, who was one of the first... Big Talmud Chachami, who also had a PhD. He also had a PhD. He also he also uh, went to he went to university, right? And he spoke. Anybody read any of his wonderful classic books? Rabbi Hirsch wrote books like um, Chorev, which is a wonderful, great way of explaining all of observance in detail. He wrote the he wrote the um, uh, the nineteen letters. The nineteen. Nobody knows this. Okay, I'm giving you Judaism 101. Um, I really suggest you take notes because I'm giving you some of the basic classic books. If you're looking for a good book to wow. read, pick up the Rav Shimshon Hirsch's 19 letters, which he imagines a dialogue between a university student and a rabbi asking fundamental questions of life. He speaks to the modern mind, but it's all Torah rendered, given over in terms that people could relate to, people that understand on, 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 their, on their own terms. Um, so, so my view of history is to emphasize the fact that the Rambam was first and last and everything in the middle, Torah. And incidentally, Eli, you asked this question, incidentally, the Rambam was also happened to practice medicine and that figured into his greater world. And he also happened to be thinking in Aristotelian terms, but that did not in any way define the man. Any other questions about what you see in front of you? Okay, let me, let, let me, let me launch into, proper, into Jewish history. Jewish history 101. Um, this is probably familiar, but it's really worthwhile starting... starting Start, starting a crash course in history is appreciating Klal Yisrael and where we've been and where we're going to. Um, and I'll start with sometimes it takes a non-Jew to look at the Jews and appreciate where we are. Who are famous examples in history? We'll do little little quizzes. And quizzes. Who are examples of great non-Jews who've done great things, like said brachas to a Kaddish Baruch in last week's Parsha? Who's, who's the first person to give, a, give to bless Hashem for greatness? Evan Avram. He said Eliezer. He's not called that in last week's Parsha, but Evan Avram, as he's referred to in last week's Parsha, he does it. Who else blesses Hashem? And they're not Jewish. Yisro, excellent example. Right? And you see this repeatedly in history. It takes the non-Jews, not always, it takes the non-Jews a lot of time to see, the, see sometimes, like an anthropologist, 
can study a, um, a, a culture from a distance and they notice things in the culture that the, cult the people in the culture themselves are too immersed to notice, sometimes it takes the, uh, the, the foreigner to understand. So I refer, of course, to the famous article that appeared in Harper's Magazine in 1899 written by Mark Twain. Samuel Clemens. You know, you know I was going to go there. It's a great way to start the class because he's on to something. If, who's never heard this before? Who doesn't know what I'm talking about? It's fantastic. Well, he wrote a letter, right? He wrote, he wrote an article. On a, he writes about, the article's called Concerning the Jews. He was in Eretz Yisrael many years before this. Many years before he sat in Eretz Yisrael. I, when I guide you in the old cities, I love to do, and if we didn't go there, remember the, when, on the first day of Shabbos, I took you to the Klein the Kosel? If you were to walk, picture this, right? You're walking... Um, towards the Muslim quarter, we actually can identify the hotel where Twain stayed in 1869 uh, when he stayed there. The, um, he writes like this, and I, I don't generally read things, but this is, this is so beautifully written and it really captures something that it's worth reading. Twain writes like this, if statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. The Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of has always been heard of. He is his, pro and by the way, Twain was a bit of an anti-Semite. Yeah, so yeah. part of this was tinged with a little anti-Semitism, but here it seems to be only positive. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people. His commercial import importance is extravagantly out of proportion with the smallness of his bulk. His contribution to the world's list of great names in literature and science and art and music, finance, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. So it's his reflection on the Jews. I might emphasize other virtues that the Jews have, but this is Twain's version. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all ages, and he's done it with his hands tied behind his back. Um, this stays with me. That last image is so true. There's no way we should be here today, right? And literally they attacked us and we had our hands behind our backs and somehow we managed and they're not here anymore. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise. They're gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time. It burned out. They sit in twilight now or have totally vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things, Twain concluded, are mortal, but the Jew, all other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? He asks rhetorically. Water bottle or something? It's fine. Thank you very kind. Anybody know? What is the secret of his immortality? Torah. 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 Yeah, a little siyata on our sides, too. Shem, and actually, Torah, but, but more specifically, um, there was a time that it wasn't inevitable that we were immortal. Test your Jewish history. Uh, what, where, was the, where was our fate sealed as being immortal? Certain promise made? Uh, after Harsina. After Harsina. We were about to be eradicated. Cheta Egel. Oh. That was about the... Uh, and then Hashem... Moshe had to bargain for us. He was our man in a pinch. Right? He bargained for us and Hashem said, we'll never destroy Kval Yisrael. Individuals maybe. Insofar as you live your life and you have nothing to do with Kval Yisrael, and a lot of Jews like that, sadly, in the world today, people who don't have much to do with Kval Yisrael, they can perish. And their fate is gone. They're, 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 they, they, they go the way of the, of, of the Goyim. 
But anybody who becomes a vibrant part of Klal Yisrael, and obviously that's the major thing, that's what we're doing, that's what Derech is all about, being an Eretz Yisrael, being Yishalayim right down the street from the holiest place in the universe, um, you realize, wow, I'm part of this amazing people. I'm not just living my life for myself. I'm connecting myself with all of eternity. Uh, you, realize, you realize there's something very big here. Um, Rav Yaakov Emden, one of the great Jews of all time, writing in his, his probably wrote the definitive commentary on the Sidur, um, on the Perush the Sidur, familiar with Rav Yaakov Emden? Uh, maybe he'll come up later too. Fantastic stories. Totally one of a kind person. Um, he writes like this. He says, when I consider the great wonders of our continued existence, because we shouldn't be here, they take on greater significance than all the miracles that Hashem performed for our ancestors in Egypt, in the desert, and when they entered Eretz Israel. The longer the exile lasts, and he's in a really tough period, uh, not, that we're, not, not that ours is not that much better, he says the miracle of Jewish existence becomes more obvious. It's to make known Hashem, that Hashem is master over the entire world and throughout time. Gracious bar alukim es shemaim Hashem created the world. At Hashem's command, everything came into existence. Before this, nothing existed. A concept that if we dwell on it too long, it'll, it'll make our minds uh, spontaneously combust. We won't be able to handle that, that idea. That time began. One of the greatest gifts to humanity is this notion that time began, that history actually is what we call linear, which means it's a straight line. There's a beginning, there's a middle, that's the stuff we're doing, and there's an end. I don't know if you realize how radical that idea is, but it's not the common mode in human thought in history and even in the present tense. How do most people think in contrast? Keep going up time, and down. Time is infinite. Right, history repeats itself. Right, and, and the nihilistic worldview that we're really going nowhere is the dominant worldview. You've taken it in, if you ever watch one of those things, they have these um, boxes, now they're small. Oh, they come in this form too. Uh, and they show you movies that's full of this defeatist, feudalist kind of a worldview that the world is pointless. They don't see history as having a beginning and a middle and an end, but when you do, you see there's meaning to it. There's a purpose to everything in creation. That's how Hashem created the world. That's what we know. At Hashem's command, suddenly, through the most spectacular series of miracles, everything comes into existence. This is really the eschatological drama. Eschatology is a fancy word. It just means we're going to something greater, some big finish, some wowzo kind of a, a supernatural experience we're heading for. We're all part of this process. Um, is, 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 is coming down. Is coming down. Um, it's the struggle fundamentally between goodness and evil. In all of our individual lives and on a collective level, it's the struggle of the physical versus the spiritual. And that, whereas the Christian world, which I'm going to be talking about a lot because it's influential in the world and in our lives, the Christian world um, will say that the spiritual and the physical are mutually exclusive. And the world, we can only have, this is a Neoplatonic idea, we can only have spirituality, physicality equals evil. The Jewish view is not like that. Hashem says, here's the world, it's wonderful. It's physical, it can drag you down like the Yitzhahara can drag you down. So what do you do with the Yitzhahara? You drag it to the base medrash. Mashcheyu the base medrash, which means, right, using, using some familiar terminology, hopefully to all of us, right, you drag it to the base of medrash, which means you take, you take, the, you take the physical base and you, you elevate it. You infuse it with spiritual. How do you go about doing that? Should we eat delicious food? Yes. Absolutely. When? Shabbos Kodesh. Yantif. Yantif. 
a stam day because you feel like going out for your birthday, eh, there's no Jewish source for such an idea. Right? Just to indulge your, your, your basic passions, your drives, your desires, not a Jewish concept. Because our idea is to take the raw matter of physicality and elevate it to the spiritual. Take clothes, what do we do? Dress nice for Shabbos. Dress nice for Shabbos. What else can we do? Check them for Shatnas. There's a place I just gave directions to, to, for the uh, for the Shatnas lab down the street, uh, right? You make sure, you make sure that you're wearing you're wearing something that's respectable because you hold yourself. You're part of the system. You're you're a Jewish person. You should be proud to be a Jew. And as such as such, you have to look you have to look respectable. Go ahead, Yosef. Loading of Kohana. Day Kahuna. We have a special imperative. The Day Kahuna. This is the, this is the Jewish mission in the world. Uh, to prepare the world for nothing less for the Gilui Ashina, the revelation of the divine presence in the days of Mashiach. I say this in overview because I don't know how I have a crash course in history without realizing what we're doing in this planet. Say it again? Um, on a large level, the Parshas that we're going through, everybody does Sinai Mikra. You learn Parsha? It's great. It's so fun. Go through the Parshas every week. Uh, twice, twice with the, uh, the Hebrew and one time with the commentary. You can use the art scroll if you need as a, as a commentary. The, um, the Parshas that we're describing, you can see all of Sefer Breshis as a series of trial and errors with lots of errors, lots of failures on the part of humanity, including the Siddiquim. Fail constantly as a way of trying to do everything we just said of how good and evil struggle and evil often overrides, but goodness is right there and we're, try we're trying to, to override it. Um, we're trying to become partners in, cre with, in creation, Josh. Sorry, I didn't look at you. I, I did look at you, but it wasn't quick enough. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're looking at the, at the list. Go ahead. Oh, this is projected towards the end. No, no, no. Um, first of all, don't pay, don't take de demographics too seriously. Most demographers they, they use gross generalizations and speculation. It's very very non very soft science demography. But um, but as a general idea, there's still a lot of Jews all around the planet. That the majority of the Jews, meaning, um, it's true that. The Jews in Eretz Israel probably, if you believe the demographers, are probably a larger number than the North American continent. That's true. But that you get to the point of, take all of the various exiles, all the diasporas, add them up, and that Eretz Israel will still have the larger number than all of them together, that's a few years yet to come. So the projected date of that is not so far from now, about 15 years or so. Give or take. So we're going towards something great. Um, pivotal, the pivotal central, of course, is, is Harsine. We'll talk about that. Klal Yisrael, the central players in history when we declare Nasev Inishma. Um, now, all of this, if you think about the origins of Torah, and think about the origins of science, the scientific worldview, which is our other um, reference point, science doesn't really address most of this stuff. What are we here for? What's the purpose of everything? Science can't. It doesn't have the tools. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. But that's what, and, and, and interestingly, in contrast, Torah doesn't go into much science. If you notice, you open the Torah, you'd be at a loss to explain the wonders of the universe, what's called mysebrachis. We're, we're not given that, we're not given that, that bit of information. Torah is more, when it talks about the creation of the sun and the moon, and the Medrash is every bit as part of Torah as the written Torah. So the Medrash tells us a famous, uh, the famous story that, you all, that many of you probably know, I don't know if you all know it, uh, of the creation of the moon. Why, did the, why is the moon smaller than the sun? Tell me. It'll have its time. 
The moon said there's not room for the two of us in this universe. We got two great rulers in the sky, two great lights. What does Hashem say to the moon? Good point, moon. I'll make one of you smaller and you're the candidate for the job. Because he was a little arrogant. He stuck his neck out on behalf of himself. Uh, and therefore Hashem said, you're getting smaller. And you're going to actually refract the, the rays of light from the sun, uh, he says to the moon. Meaning, in our account, what is this whole little parable coming to teach us? Lots Hashem of things. But let me, Hashem and us, but think about it. It's teaching us not so much science. I don't know much about how the moon and the sun coming to being. But I do know a lot from this story, this parable, about morality and how to be a mensch. And if you really want to assert yourself, the best thing you can do is do good things. Don't try to, uh, don't try to place yourself ahead of the other guy. Meaning, what's concerning the Torah from the get-go and all the way through to the end is how we can lead a more decent life, how goodness can vanquish e evil. You were going to ask something before, Yosef? It's not really on history, it's more on like... Ask, go ahead. Okay. Um, I'd like to keep this loose. I mean, as long as it's generally in the ballpark we're doing, it's fine. Great, great. And feel comfortable asking as okay, we when, go. When uh, Hashem doesn't want everybody in the world to be Jewish, right? He wants people to not our goal. Other religions, namely Christi Christians and Muslims, are the dominant religions in the world today. 2.2 billion people in the world are Muslim. One point, excuse me, are, are Christian. Uh, 1.5 billion people in the world are Muslims. These are Pitzkala. Uh, in comparison, they want to convert the world. We don't. Never been our aspiration. We just want them to see a Kaddish Baruch. Exactly. So what I, what I was trying to get to is, why do we allow converts then? Like, it's an like option. There are them. small Jewish communities, Syrian Jews, for example, as a principle, don't accept converts. Yeah. There's such a concept out there. But the general approach is that if a person's genuine and they want to serve Hashem, not just, you can serve Hashem as a good Ben Noach. Ben Noach is the halachic term for a non-Jew. If you're a Ben Noach, it means you formally accept the Sheva Mitzvot Ben Noach, the seven Noachide laws. What are they? Basic Judaism. What are the seven right, Noachide um, laws? Here's how do you how do you remember them? Aleph, base, gimel, dalid, and then and then plus the big three. Okay. Aleph, Aver Minachai, eating a limb off of a live animal base, it's a euphemism, it's a euphemism, Birkas Hashem, which means the opposite, it's prohibited, even the Goyim are not allowed to curse Hashem, Gimel, Gezel, theft, Dalit, the one positive mitzvah, Dinim, and the big three? Murder, adultery, and idol worship. Not quite precise. No, you're right. Gilear... Avodah Zarah is really the first. Avodah Zarah, Shvichus Dami, murder. And Gilead Arias includes adultery, but all of the prohibitions, incest, incest in all the various um, Arayos, as we is call them. Is premarital relations also? No. You want to go there right now? You sure you want to do that? No. That's not a history I question. Know, a history I, we can go there. It's interesting, but not for now. Well, it could be history. If, history, if the end game is not for going to become Jews. If the end game is for a guy not to become Jews, but to follow these these seven ayat laws, then are we allowed to to uh, to to convert them, proselytize? Not to proselytize them, but I'm saying to advertise these to. We can, and what we should do, you know, goy shalom Torah is misa. A is not allowed to learn Torah, and we can't teach them. If we teach them Torah, we're violating the Torah prohibition, at least one, of lifne Aver. We're, we're putting a stumbling block before the blind, because they, they're going to die if they learn Torah. Um, but what we can teach them, so that means actually learning Torah with thumbs out, like we do in the mornings, like Gemara-style learning Torah. But what they can do is set the record straight. And we can, that's why I guide, when I guide, I do, I am open and I have get guided um, non-Jews in Eretz Yisrael. It's a wonderful experience. At least so far, I've had great experiences doing so. Because it's all a shkafa. But I'm going to like, I, I tell them ask me anything, and let's go into anything you want to talk about, and we do, and it's all, it's, when you really know Torah, it's all Kiddush Hashem. People are wowed by it, because Torah is a wowser. 
right? So if you can do that, fantastic. Right? It's actually teaching that the rudiments of Torah, that's already, that's the Jewish domain. Not, not for non-Jews. Um, as a, like as, whereas our punishments are more, or more moderate, moderated, any one of their transgressions, and there are a few more. Anybody learn the seventh paragraph of Sanhedrin? Yeah, that's where, that's where you'd learn more. And it's a really interesting chapter. It go, goes all into this, and maybe they also have kilayim, and some of them have also certain, certain other, other obligations. But, but if they violate any one of these, including, let's say, they, they, they steal or they eat Avram Minachai, um, then they're Haib Misa. That's what you're... I don't understand why Why they would deserve that? The Torah defines these, and I don't want to branch into this tangent too long because it's more conceptual than historical, but the Torah defines that as something that's basic to humanity. That on some primal level, even they know the difference between right and wrong, and they know on some maybe subconscious level that, that they, sh- they, they can't do that. They're not allowed to learn Torah formally, but they, they should know in general that these are their obligations. And these, these uh, you know this, and the, they're, they're former Southern Baptists and other people like this too, who now call themselves B'nai Noach. You're familiar with this phenomenon in the world today? Yeah, they're groups of people who consider themselves formal B'nai Noach. They hold by Hashem and Tyra and the Jews. They want Jews back oh, in Eretz yeah. Israel. And they learn this, and they have their own sidur, and they do their own things, but they're basically the most pro-Jewish people out there who are not actually technically Jews. Is that good? I don't know. I think it's mainly, certainly compared to most of the alternatives in history, most of, the, most of history, the non-Jews were, how do you say, they were deplorable, they were uh, horrif- horr- horrifying, you know, what they did to the Jews. So this is about as good as it gets. I think there's something cynical there, maybe as like a slight nuance, but that's an editorial comment. It's nothing major. They're, they're basically great and love them and treat them well. We should love all humanity, right? Chaviv Adam, Rabbi Kiva teaches in the, in the beginning of the third paragraph of, of, uh, of, of Pirkei. Obviously, there yet, Bernie? Third paragraph yet? Okay, he's on his way to memorize the whole thing, uh, right? So, so Chaviv Adam, Shiniva B'Tselem. All of humanity, non Jews included, are beloved. They're created in God's image. But Rabbi Kiva continues, Chaviv Yisrael Shinikru Bonim. We're called. Hashem's kinderlach. So the world's created, it's created for goodness, that goodness should, should uh, survive. Am Yisrael says, says Nasev and Nishma. Um, Adam is created, that's where the world is for. When Adam is created in Aden, in Aden Gan Aden, he's an idealized version of what we have, what we can, the best vision of utopia that, that humanity's ever been presented with. The only competing vision of utopia in not quite as um, regal, transcendent terms, what's the best time in all of history? You should know this. Oh, uh, Shlomo. Shlomo. Late period David, most of the term until the end of Shlomo's time, um, is the pinnacle of all of history. It's all uphill to that point. All of my Sebrachis is poised for that time. And then it's all steep downhill from that point. But Shlomo represents the building of the first temple, the base of Mikdash, was the peak experience of history. When we think of the Yemosa Mashiach, the closest image we have are the days of Shlomo Melech. And we'll get to there, Bezrash Hashem, one thing at a time. Adam is even higher, but it's an image that we can't even fathom because God Adam was beyond us. I've, some of you have heard me use this before. It's such a fantastic image. I just said this on, 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 on Shabbos. Anybody who was by, by Surah Sheep when we talked about this, when you looked at Adam in Gan Eden, what did you see? Remember this? What did you see when you saw Adam? You saw his neshama. If you tried really hard, but you had to like, you had to really work hard, you might have made out his goof, his body. But his neshama radiated. It was brilliant. Right? Today, we're the exact opposite. We see the goof, we see the, the externals of the person. You look really hard, where do you have to look? 
Define the neshama? The eyes. The eyes are the source. Look in the eyes and you might make out the neshama, but even then that's, that's it's difficult for us. This is an idealized, he stood, the, the Medrash tells us, from the Shemaim to the Aretz. He was, his knowledge was complete. He knew all Kula Torah Kula. He was, he was on, on, on such a level we can't, we can't fathom. He, this is great. He had no body odor. He didn't need deodorant. When did that become a reality? It's a major theme of history. When did sweat start? When, did, when, did, when was there waste? He didn't go to the bathroom. After, after the sin. After the chait. Because, if you want to know history, the major organizing principle, and this is what everybody said, two words that Chazal say, everything is, and look at the beginning of Parshish Vayishlach, Rashi uses this expression, hachait gorem. Sin causes everything. Sin is the pinnacle of everything. We talked about the Zoramban the other day, right? The sin causes everything, and therefore, um, if you have bad breath, it's because you sin. The Gemara tells the story of one of the great Tanaim, Rabbi Lazar, the son of the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who hid out with his father all those years in the cave for twelve and then thirteen years in the cave. You know the story, right? So Rabbi Elazar was was an immense person in more ways more ways than one. Anybody knows the Gemara about Metzia knows what I'm talking about. Um, and he dies, and his for all kinds of interesting reasons, but not our, not our story right now. His body, his his wife keeps his body in the attic for some say eighteen, some say twenty two years. The Gemara says, and um, it doesn't decompose. She's creepy. It's not creepy at all. It doesn't decompose because he was perfect. And he had what, he's one of these stellar human beings, like Adam Arishon and Gan Eden, who just didn't have any waste. Because his perfection was manifested in the physical sphere. Except once. Have you noticed? Uh, except yeah, once? No, no. Right, the worm comes out of his ear. His wife oh, yeah. sees the worm out of his ear. She's horrified. He's not perfect. So he comes to her in a dream and he explains, no, no. One time I heard somebody denigrating a rabbi and I defended the rabbi, but not with all my might. Meaning he did the right thing. It wasn't even a sin. It would have been counted by you and me as a sin. By him it was a sin. And that manifested in a worm, a singular tiny worm coming out of his ear. Meaning all imperfection comes because of sin, which is obviously a huge idea, metaphorically, that everything, whether we're in this land or not in this land, people want to know what the solution is with, with, our, with, our, with our cousins across the street. Everything is organized around hate. You want to you want to you want to behave ourselves if collectively Klaistro, you want to make chuva fantastic. We want people coming out and stabbing us. You don't want to, you have problems. Hachet Gorem. Hachet is the organizing principle of history, and that's when Adam is exiled from Gan Eden. He suddenly goes to the bathroom for the first time. There's no there's no waste. When else do we have this experience in history? There's one other time specifically there was no human waste by the man, by the desert. The desert was Kimea Shemayim Al Haaretz, days of heaven in this world. In this manifestation, um, it was it was a heavenly existence, and you ate the man. It was perfect food. There was no, you know, you only need to excrete food when there's when there's something not healthy for you. It's not if it's healthy, it's great. No 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 no, no waste. Perfect food. I mean, the truth is that's not the, that's not the only other example. The other example of perfection in this world that we all experienced once was a baby in the mother's womb. Yeah. And for the first few days, when the when the mother's not producing milk yet, it, it, the mother produces a, a liquid, a clear substance called colostrum. Um, the baby has that. The baby also. Um, when do babies? I mean, this sounds really gross, but it's really it really illustrates the principle. When do babies start to smell? When do they, when do their feces? When, when does it start to smell bad? It takes a while. 
That's six months in, then suddenly you change the baby's diapers. They're not so cute anymore. Not quite as cute as they used to be. They're so cute. Not quite as cute as they used to be. The smell comes in. But the smell, as I'm using as a metaphor for the sin, that only as we age, only as the human lower, the Yetzirah quality creeps in. Although it's a question, the Yetzirah is not really there. The Yetzirah is there. When did the Yetzirah come to the human, human being? Antonius Pius teaches this? From birth. From birth. Because he proves this to Rabbi Yudanasi. He says that otherwise the baby would kick all the way out. And it doesn't do that. It only, it only starts when the baby's born. It takes a little while to manifest. That's why the smell only comes in, my theory, six months what into life. What about them? They're kicking in the womb. We did this on... Uh, Interesting point. Uh, when he kicked, uh, uh, we read on Monday morning. Every other baby that kicks in the womb. Yeah, who was eating lunch with? I was, but yeah, we were talking about this by, by the Shabbos table, yeah. right? We talked about it by the Shabbos table in my house, right? 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 That, it was immediately. Yeah, it can't be. And we, we said otherwise, but let's not go. Let's not go too much. Right, in that what was the story when they kicked by the yeshiva and then they and that's like, literally what he just right? That's exactly that's I mean, Rashi brings at the beginning of this week's parsha. Parsha talks about that. And what does it mean? So I suggested like this. I'll give it to already. Uh, one Teirutz, there are a few different you could choose, but one Teirutz that I like that sits with me is, is that he didn't have a Yetzirah formally, he had a predilection. Meaning his, his inclination, I'm assuming everybody knows the Medrash, it's unfair. Um, you know when Rivka used to walk by the base of Odazara, the house of idolatry, so Esav got all, his fetus got all excited, oh, let me out, let me out. And when she walked by the base Medrash, Yaakov had the same reaction, let me out, let me out. And what does that mean? That Esav had a Yetzirah already then? That's the Kasha that Daniel just asked. So the, an answer can be that no, it had, a, it had an inclination. It was going there without it being a fully formed Yetzir. Only once it's born in this world to have a Yetzir. It didn't actually do anything there. And it was not kicking there. The Yisrotsu too has different meanings. Uh, go look at Rashi and the other Mepharshim. Uh, after the sin, after the sin, he's cursed. Thorns and thistles come up for us. There's sadness in childbirth. Men and women uh, have problems. Uh, much of history is created. Everything is a tikkun. Kabbalists understand there's a lot of Kabbalistic significance in all of these stories. Uh, not time as we're doing the crash course. But, um, but the woman becomes subordinate to the man like the moon to the sun. I mentioned that just recently in a, in a, in a previous class. And, um, and all, of all, of, all of history changes. And everything is not meant as a kind of a punishment. It's not punitive because Hashem takes no pleasure in putting us in her place. Kind of like parents do. I'm going to punish you, kid, and I'm going to get a lot of kicks out of it. Um, no, Hashem gets no kicks out of seeing us writhe and suffer in misery. Everything is an opportunity for us to grow. So if, if Chava was domineering over her husband to the point that she cr her tears forced him to eat from the fruit, what kind of fruit was it? Not an apple, that's Christian. One, one opinion, pomegranate, dates, wheat is another opinion, estrog is another opinion, different kinds of opinions. In any case, she domineered him. Her tikkun, meaning everything we're doing in here is all tshuva-oriented, is to be subordinate to her husband for all of history as a way of fixing that, that sin, that, that, that initial imperfection. The Christians derive from this, my sheer pardon me, this is repetition a little bit. We talked about the Eight Sahara. This is such a relevant point in history, though. The Christians derive from this episode what they emphasize original sin. And if you go, you're not allowed to. It's us going to a church. It's kind of a Vodazara. If you go, though, if you know about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the, Christian, in the Christian quarter, they have two tombs there inside the, Christian, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. One is Yashka. The other one is Adam. Because when Adam sinned, he blew it for humanity. He, his death and his life, really, was the death knell to all of humanity. It basically signified that we're hopeless. Tshuva? Give me a break? You think you can change? Give it up. What's your only hope for redemption? Yashka. Belief in Yashka. If you believe in Yashka, you'll get saved. If you don't, you could be the finest person in the world. 
you're going down. Yes, because he is. If you don't believe in him, then you're going down. The Jews, the Torah, in contrast with Christianity, it's helpful to know this. I say this because we are, whether we realize it or not, totally brainwashed by the Christian society. Most, most of us are more Christian than we like to believe. Uh, and therefore, it's helpful to know what their ideas are and then what are our ideas in contrast. The Jewish view is, what are you talking about? Of course we can make tshuva. That's the whole, the whole world's creation is predicated on the tshuva principle. Without tshuva, we're nothing. We're not human beings. That's why Hashem gave us freedom of choice. And therefore, we can. The Sforno, and the Ramban says like this too, when it says, um, near the end of the Torah, in Parshish, in Parshish uh, Nitzavim, it says that the, it's not far from you, it's not too far away from you. Rashi and the other Mepharshim say that's Torah, Torah is accessible, you can get it. The Sforno, the Ramban, and others say it's Tshuva. Why do they have to say, why does the Torah have to teach us that Tshuva is not far from us? Because it feels like it is a lot of the time. Because the idea, the prospect of human change, and I'm a therapist, so I know this is true. In the, in the therapy room, the idea, the prospect of changing a midah, quality, is very hard. And everybody agrees it's extremely difficult. It'll be, if you change things in your life, it'll be your life's greatest mission and you'll get huge reward in Olam Haba. But it's hard and come to the Sforno and the, and the Ramban and say, you can. Everybody can. Atat tim shol bo. Remember the Pasuk from Cain in our, in our Gemara that's quoted? You can rule over it if you choose to. That's hap- that happens to Tshuva. We are, unlike the Christian world, the Jews and the Torah, we're the eternal optimists. We actually think we can make something of ourselves, and we start lowly, and we can build ourselves up. That's the, that's the original narrative of history. You don't understand a crash course in history and understand what we're doing here, and what, what, all, what, what all that's for. The, the purpose of what we're doing here is fixing the sin. The world is created for man. Asher bara elokim la'asos, as we say in the Pasuk, as we say in Kiddush on Shabbos night, that Hashem created the world to do. How do we complete the world? We imitate the Creator. He creates the world. How do we create? What's the biggest creation we can achieve in this world? Puravu, there's even greater. You're right, Puravu, having children is the ultimate uh, imitatio idea. Teaching Torah, the biggest thing I've been telling you. What's the biggest kind of creation you can do? Yourself. Tshuva. Change yourself. That's the ultimate creation that you're capable of. It's entirely in your hands. That's the creation of the world. That's how we understand. Asher bara elokim lasos. The world was created deliberately unfinished. It was unfinished. The body is created unfinished, therefore we have the mitzvah of Mila. One of the first mitzvahs rendered to, 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 to Klal Yisrael as a signifier, as a symbol to say, here's the world almost just right, but now you take it. You take the ball. Why do we make Kiddush on grape juice or wine? You have the grape, which is a gorgeous fruit. It's one of the most elevated of all foods, but it's not quite finished. When we have a grape, the, fault, the bracha that we said, some of us talk about brachas at lunchtime, the bracha that we say on the grapes is brepri ha'etz, but on wine, we say brepri agafim, which is a, super, a superlative bracha. Why? Because it takes human involvement, partnership with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, to actually take the grapes and make it into wine. That's why the world is here. That's what Hashem enjoins us to do, to, to join the, the Maise Breshis and take it to the next level. Lama Nivra Adam Yechivi, the Gemara asks, why is man created individually? For that each individual to realize his meta-significance in the world, each of us come into the world, we're here to be metakin something. I, mean, I don't know what it is. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, but each of us has something totally unique. No two snowflakes are like, no two faces are like. Identical twins have different faces. And everybody, everybody is totally unique in this world. You have to figure out what your tachlis, what you're doing in this world is. That's one of the reasons we learn Torah, because the more Torah you learn, the more your innate qualities start to emerge and you discover more about yourself. The greatest self-revelation you'll have is by learning Torah. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing. That's why we're created. And therefore, the person can conclude, like the Mishnah in Sanhedrin says, Bishvili nivra The world is created for me. Eli? 
things. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this concept. In fact, it's a it's a scientific concept. That, uh, <laughs> right now, that's why I'm asking this. Uh, uh, the, the concept that there is a one in sixty-four billion chance that you and another person look look exactly alike. That's statistical science, which is flawed. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say it's flawed and it's double that, and that's a crazy. What are you trying to get at with this? That after about 150 years, it's, it's going to happen. Exactly Chazal say otherwise, they're more authoritative. <laughs> they win. No, 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 they say that there's seven people in the world that are like you, there's 11% chance that you meet them. What? It's not that. <coughs> it's just been around for what? Marx, Karl Marx, has a, an inordinate uh, influence guy. on uh, Marxism. bad guy. Uh, although wow. utopian and, and inspired by certain teachings of his of his two Orthodox Jewish grandfathers, yeah, uh, but Marx taught about the unstoppable dialectic of history, and that's what shapes history. He saw the individual as as almost irrelevant in the scheme of the bigger sweep of history. And that's why, like the Mikdal Bavel, like the Tara Bavel, Bavel in, 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 you know, there's no society, there's been only one Marxist society in the world. All supposed communist societies, are not communist at all, have nothing to do with Marxism, they all become totalitarian dicta uh, dictatorships. What's the only Marxist society that ever existed, ironically? Kibbutz. The kibbutz. Yeah, and even they totally failed. Now they're all capitalists. Totally failed. Look at books. It's the only one that ever, ever he's tried to realize Marx's ideals. But Marx discounted the individual. That's why the kibbutz movement failed, by the way. He studied the kibbutz movement, a fascinating topic. You want to talk about it anytime? I'll, I'm, I'd love to. I'm, I'm very into the topic of the kibbutz okay, movement. So they utterly failed because they discounted the individual. The Torah elevates. I know. I'm like, I went on. The Torah elevates. Uh, I, I go quickly here because we're doing this is crash course stuff. We're barely past my sabratius, and we have we're getting to the modern era. Somehow, uh, yeah, and we're almost done. I have half a minute left. So the kibbutz movement showed that the individual is no good, and that's why people left the kibbutz because they were, were all were all created as individuals, and and people felt their their individual creative spirit was squashed on the kibbutz. Right, big right. That that was the nature of life there. Um, Right. So, and, and indeed, if you have this Marxist view, you could be, for example, Chairman Mao Zedong, and without thinking twice about it, having no scruples whatsoever, you can kill off 50 to 70 million, I think that's the number that they give nowadays, 50 to 70 million of his subjects with the blink of the eye, because who cares, the individual doesn't matter. Comes the Torah and says the individual is of ultimate importance to the point that you can't take any other person's life, who knows, as the Gemara says, whose blood is redder. So Adam, Adam falls. We got to Mycebrachis. We got to Adam and Gan Eden. We're going to start picking up some speed. We're going to get to the big mistake. Whose who's generation made the largest mistake in all of history? Yeah. Uh, Come back tomorrow. We'll talk about it. Say it again. Say it again. So what yeah, you about Aleph Beis Abraham Minachai, Birkas Hashem, Gezel Din. Din, um, you have to have some kind of system of justice. Why? Well, you're welcome, Yosef.